Hey everyone, welcome back to Bird Watching. This is a podcast about the cultural legacy and impact of the crow. And today's episode is a short and sweet summary of a surprising connection that I had wanted to cover um, a couple episodes ago in our talk about uh, things that happened after the first Crow movie came out. But then I was like, ooh, we should make it like a little mini episode so I can get in there and, and talk about something really cool. I don't know just how much of my audience coincides with the pro wrestling audience. And it's okay if you don't. I myself am somewhat of a fan. I'm not watching anything regularly right now, but I have a deep love for sincere people in ridiculous outfits and really sick stunts. So point is, today's episode is about the crow's impact on wrestling. So we're talking about Sting. Lee Borden, better known by his in-name ring Sting, is one of the most revered wrestlers in the business. His decades-long career includes so many milestones, accolades, and damn good matches, and arguably he accomplished most of them in corpse paint with a black leather trench coat and a decidedly morbid approach. But that's not how things started. So a wrestler's gimmick is their lifeblood in the industry. There's a lot of different ways to go about having one, be it maybe you have supernatural powers, maybe you're just really fucking good at wrestling, or maybe you're really nice to kids. All valid. But creating those characters and being able to sell it to the crowd through your matches and your promos takes so much care and attention, and sometimes really good ideas don't pan out. Plenty of wrestlers have changed their gimmicks over the years. Stone Cold Steve Austin, beer-guzzling badass, did not always portray the beer-guzzling badass character. Even The Undertaker, probably the most famous wrestling gimmick of all time, had several nondescript vaguely badass characters before finally setting on the famous dead man gimmick and then he changed it again later. Sting's gimmick at the start of his TV wrestling career wasn't really like that. He portrayed a surfer dude from Southern California, he did colorful face paint, and people really liked him. The gimmick worked for him. He was consistently in big name matches, had notorious feuds with legendary groups like the Four Horsemen, and was popular with fans since appearing on World Championship Wrestling, herein referred to as WCW, for those not in the know. If you don't know, WCW was WWF's biggest competitor back in the day, and the two shows were constantly in ratings wars. Which wrestler was on which show is a big deal? Sting was a staunch WCW guy, and one of their brightest stars. Uh, It should be noted, WWF is now WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, and they have bought the WCW back catalog, which comes into the story later. Maintaining longevity in the wrestling business means a willingness to change it up. What the audience wanted in the mid to late 90s was very different than what they wanted in the mid to late 80s era of wrestling, which Sting started it. We were coming into a time called the Attitude Era, a time of cracking open cold ones after the match, flipping off cameras every five seconds, swearing in front of children, bloodlust, and chaos. Just complete chaos. It's a fondly remembered time in wrestling history, producing some of the most memorable matches and moments and characters that even people who don't know anything about wrestling probably still associate with it to this day. Stink Surfer Dude thing was not going to make it through the Attitude Era. While still popular and still considered a good wrestler, Lee Borden knew that a change was coming and he was going to have to find a way to take advantage of it. So, on WCW Nitro and in their various pay-per-views, 
After a convoluted series of events orchestrated by perhaps the most famous wrestling stable of all time, NWO, New World Order, in which there was briefly a fake sting that NWO was using to mess with Lex Luger and other sting allies, the real sting had some angst to deal with as a character on the show. Sting shows up to cost his friends their match to New World Order on pay-per-view. He announced on TV the following Monday that he would be stepping back, taking a break, and dropping back in every once in a while. There was a couple months of Sting just not being around on TV. It happens. Wrestlers take breaks. That schedule is crazy. The Sting that returned to WCW on October 21st, 1996 was distinctly different. Scott Hall was another wrestler featured on WCW. He was a member of opposing faction The Outsiders, who had fought Sting before. Um, Scott Hall admits that he didn't really know Sting at the time, uh, but they were in the locker room hanging out prior to a show one night, um, and uh, Lee Borden had been growing his hair out a little bit, and he'd already had face paint as a pretty solid part of the Sting character before this, but it was very colorful, very, you know very not corpse paint and so scott hall was like hey you should you should take a look at the crow for inspiration for your for a character because uh everyone knew that he was trying to change it up a little bit and his storylines were getting angstier and his character just didn't really fit with what was going on in his persona's storyline on the show apparently the idea of a crow gimmick had been floating around the wwf locker room for a while but nobody had taken anybody up on the idea probably due to it treading just a little too close to the Undertaker's massively popular dead man character. But this was the time of Hulk Hogan and NWO, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, Lita, the Hardy Brothers. A Crow character would be a really good fit for this era of wrestling. Sting had been a character in the wrestling world for a solid decade at this point. The cultural tide was changing, and it was time for him to change too. On that October 21st edition of Nitro, Sting arrived in black and white mime face paint, a black trench coat, hair grown out and dyed dark to defeat fake Sting, and tell the New World Order who had been trying to recruit him to their faction previously. The only thing that's for sure about Stinger is that nothing is for sure. There were more adjustments made to the character after that, notably that he didn't speak a line on television for at least a year. He would show up at matches and just watch, usually perched somewhere high up in the crowd, sometimes with a baseball bat. Look and character immediately revitalized Sting to the public and made him an instant fascination, especially in the period where he wasn't even wrestling, where he would just show up. Nobody knew who Sting, previously an MVP team player, would be siding with in the various power struggles amongst the WCW roster. You never knew what he was going to do next, who would be his friend, who would be his enemy, and who he would be fighting. From here, Sting would have some of the most publicized matches, win the WCW championship belt multiple times, and in general made a huge splash with this character. Yeah, it's a wrestling pun. Get on board, people. Fans weren't the only ones who noted character similarities between Sting and the Crow. A few early iterations of Sting's makeup were just a little too close to Eric Draven, and copyright folks came a knockin', although it's a hard sell for an infringement case. It also helps that Sting never really associated with birds. He's always had like a scorpion motif. His finishing move is called the scorpion death drop, etc., etc. It's also notoriously hard to call wrestling gimmicks infringement. WCW at the time especially was very loose with its legal um, parameters. Unlicensed music would always play. Like they were using Metallica for wrestler entrances. And 
copywriting a gimmick in the wrestling world is contested even to this day. See the Broken Matt Hardy saga. The character and makeup eventually divulged into something more original, although the original current of the crow still carries through it. Different colors got incorporated, Sting added red to the makeup look when he joined the Wolfpack sub-faction of NWO a couple years down the road. And this is a personal theory, but I also think Sting's baseball bat wielding kind of influenced the crow back. Like, originally Eric briefly swings a baseball bat in pawn shop in the movie, and there might be, like, incidental baseball bat swingage in the comics, but now we pretty regularly see the crow drawn with the bat in various places, and I'm pretty sure an action figure or two has come equipped with one. It's one of those weird instances of the story coming back to influence the story, and something that I am genuinely fascinated by and try to hone in on as much as possible in this particular show. Having a dark and edgy wrestling persona is nothing new. Many people have done it successfully over the years, but the two most popular are undeniably Sting and The Undertaker. And they never wrestled each other. Two guys who changed up their gimmicks to become darkly inclined characters and became all the more popular because of it have never faced off in the ring together. Granted, they were on different promotions back in their heydays, Sting on WCW, Undertaker on WWF. But it's a dream match that many have wished for over the years. But with more time passing, it seems unlikelier and unlikelier. There have been some alterations to the Sting gimmick over the years, even a pivot to a more Joker-inspired character in the TNA wrestling promotion that stands for total non-stop action, get it together, you filthy animals. But Crow Sting is how so many people remember loving him during his heyday and has been his primary gimmick. He wrestled for a couple of different companies, TNA included, uh, historically made a return to WWE, who again had bought the WCW company, including their back catalog of tapes, and any wrestler contracts at the time. Uh, Sting appeared in the uh, mid-2010s, uh, feuded with Triple H, also who has a signature weapon of a sledgehammer, sledgehammers versus baseball bats, let's go, wrestling is a hand-to-hand combat sport, unless you're them. Sting also was one of the only wrestlers to be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame while still active, although he did announce his retirement during his induction speech. He took a hiatus for a couple of years, appeared on a birthday episode for Ric Flair in like 2016, I believe. I was watching that episode when it aired. And in 2020, the WWE shop stopped stocking his merch, and it was revealed that Sting had made his way to rival upstart wrestling promotion AEW, All Elite Wrestling. They're currently WWE's stiffest competition in uh, the United States, for sure. Japan, I don't know much about, but they're pretty awesome. So Sting is still wrestling, (laughs) is the craziest thing. Like, his incredible career could have stopped in the mid-2010s, and that would have been fine, but he's still going. He made headlines the other day for being a 62-year-old man powerbombing a wrestler through a table. That's insane! It's a long career, with one of the most popular gimmicks of all time. And it's amazing to see how well the Crow film, released two years prior to this gimmick change, slotted into the pop culture of 96, a year of transition that we are going to continue to cover on the show, and has lasted to this day. Notably for this show, as you might have heard from last time's episode, The Crow City of Angels, the sequel, 
did come out in 1996 as well. But there's really no mention of it having an impact on the gimmick usage in WCW or having an impact on Sting's character. Uh, That's not to say that it didn't. That's just not information that I could confirm. And it wasn't really brought up anywhere else. Most people were still talking about the first film positively. It's interesting to note. Thus concludes my coverage of Sting for this episode of Birdwatching. I hope you enjoyed this little detour into wrestling history, something that I love, but the wealth of information about it is a little bit terrifying. If I missed an anecdote that you love, or got something factually wrong, or if you're confused, drop me a line on Twitter. I legitimately, there's so much information about this period of time in the business of wrestling that I couldn't fit it all into this little mini episode, but it was also too big to put into another episode. We will continue to cover the year 1996 on the show. It was a pivotal year for The Crow. The further adventures of the comics started happening. City of Angels happened, but we've already covered that. We get our first look into the novelizations and various original pieces created under The Crow banner. There's a lot going on. And it was a wild year in pop culture history anyway. Still coming after the effects of the also extremely pivotal and impactful year of 1994 for pop culture. So stay tuned. There's a lot left to cover in this one year alone before we get into anything else coming our way. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All the music was written and performed by me. All the research was done by me. And I'll have links and various little things to check out posted to our Twitter and our Instagram page upon this episode's release. I hope y'all are doing good. It's a crazy and chaotic time to be alive, as it has been pretty much the entire time that I've been doing this show. And if this show made you happy, I'm glad. Until next time, see you later.